Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast with Dr. Lance Miller. Each week, we bring you interviews with the top minds in the orthodontic profession in order to heighten your expertise, boost your motivation, and raise your skills. Join us as we help doctors take their practices and their lives to the next level. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lance Miller. Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast. I'm Dr. Lance Miller. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. Uh, it's been a great weekend and week here in New Hampshire. Uh, I've had a wonderful weekend with my family, hanging out, and yesterday cheering on, like I'm sure all of you did, the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl, uh, which of course is makes us very happy up here. I think everyone that I've met today has just had a smile on their face. And I'm sure you can relate because I know all of you out there are are big Patriots fans as well. We've got a great podcast today. Uh, We're going to get right straight into the interview with Dr. Aaron Mullen, who I've wanted to have on the podcast for a while, and I'm very excited to bring to you. We had a great conversation, and it's one that you're really going to love. So we'll jump right into the podcast after a quick word from today's sponsor. This episode of the Elevate Orthodontics podcast is sponsored by the Aligner Intensive Fellowship Course, where together we will accomplish something greater. For orthodontists only, this course taught by Drs. Maz Mushiri and me, Jonathan Nikosesis, is a comprehensive four-month online course where you learn all things aligner therapy, from biomechanic principles to logistical systems for seamless office integration and the economics of more aligners in your practice. Think of it as a 12-chapter online dynamic textbook where the content is broken down in videos posted throughout each week and you're able to ask questions in real time in a virtual classroom setting from the convenience of your own home or office on your own computer or cell phone without having to travel. With the ability of applying the course content to any aligner system or in-office solution of your choosing, the Aligner Intensive Fellowship is where together we will certainly accomplish something greater. Dr. Aaron Molin is an internationally recognized speaker on merging technology and orthodontics and has served as the chair of the AAO's Committee on Technology. He serves on the Technology Editorial Board for the AJODO and has published several papers and textbook chapters on the topic of technology in orthodontics. He previously served on the PCSO Board of Directors. Dr. Molin's practice includes three locations south of Seattle and maintains a strong social media presence. He is an avid traveler and has swum in all five oceans and visited all seven continents. He loves spending his free time with his wife and three beautiful children. Dr. Molin, welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. Thanks for having me, Lance. Happy to be here. So seven continents. That's great. I've done six. So tell me a little bit about Antarctica. So Antarctica, interestingly enough, there is a way to fly there. Yeah. Uh, so a buddy of mine, high school uh, buddies, uh, junior high buddies, and then we were called roommates. And now we still, we live literally five minutes from each other. So we try to do a man trip once a year. Sometimes it's like every other year, but we try to do something that our wives wouldn't want to do with us. We had a week to do it. So we uh, flew down uh, using frequent flyer miles with like $60 in airfare (laughs) using miles. Got ourselves down to Santiago, Chile, uh, took a puddle jumper down to uh, Punta Arenas. And then there's an outfit out of there that will fly you from Punta Arenas down to Antarctica, to one of the islands right off the Antarctica Peninsula called King George Island. And you spend overnight, you go out on the glaciers, you spend, you actually sleep in a uh, research center overnight. You go walk with the penguins, which is the coolest thing ever. It was amazing. And then you fly back the next day. So instead of doing a three-week cruise down there, 
uh, you're able to kind of pop down. You're on the content. You're in Antarctica. You're getting your photos, and and then you're back seeing patients a week later. I might have to. I might have to look into that. That sounds pretty good. Oh, it's amazing. Patagonia was. Gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, that sounds fantastic. I know, I know you're a big traveler. I, I, I follow some of your uh, adventures on on Facebook. That's something that I'm definitely interested in as well. But we're here today to talk a little bit about you know, a couple of topics, which I'm really excited about. Uh, the first of which we heard a little bit in the introduction, which is technology and orthodontics. I'm always interested in this. You know, orthodontists have this. Like maybe a love hate relationship with technology, or maybe orthodontists just have you know enough free cash flow that they can invest in all of these technology toys. But tell me a little bit about these organizations that you worked with, the uh, technology editorial board for the AJO and uh, the committee on technology for the AO. What is kind of the purpose of these organizations for people maybe that haven't heard of it or don't really understand you know what you're trying to accomplish there? Well, with with the AJODO. Basically, any articles that are submitted that have to do with technology, the the lead editor is going to uh, figure out who he'd like to review the article, and then I just play a role in reviewing the article and giving my opinion to the authors on what they need to improve before it's published or if it should be published at all. Uh, Whereas with the uh, Committee on Technology, CTEC, as it was called or is called on the American Association of Orthodontists, that's a completely different role. The idea there is, number one, to serve the board of directors, the board of trustees for the AO, if there's any technology questions or resolutions that need research, they're going to assign those down to CTEC. But CTEC is also involved in bringing things up, bubbling things up from the membership to the board of trustees. So for example, protected trust, which is a HIPAA compliant email service that came directly from CTEC. So CTEC saw the need, CTEC went out, researched all the different providers, negotiated a good deal, and made a recommendation up to the board. So it's a very active committee, which works really well because really the board of trustees isn't always aware of what the technology needs are out there. So CTEC has the autonomy to kind of bring those forward. So it was a, it was a good opportunity. to. It's an eight-year service. So it was eight years doing that, which was great. Uh, I really enjoyed doing it. But the guys on there and the gals on there doing it, deserve all due respect because it's a big commitment, as are all the AEO committee and councils. How did you get involved with this? Is this something that you have an interest in or or what kind of led you into this role of speaking and and serving on these committees? Well, I mean, ironically, I didn't get a cell phone until I was in my, you know, mid twenties. I I resisted uh, email initially. You know, I, I wasn't born with, with technology like millennials are today, but I've always been, yeah, I, I don't know, just the future and uh, it's amazing what you can do to simplify your life. And I want to take apart the clock and figure out how it works. So I naturally kind of tended towards technology when it came out, but it, it, it wasn't my first uh, inclination. Yeah. I, I used to Palm Pilot to, to play games. Uh, I didn't actually use it for anything else. <laughs> but as to how did I get into the, the speaking and the technology side, I, I think I was just in the right place at the right time. Uh, I started dental school when Combeam introduced, was introduced in the United States in 2001. They needed kids to do research projects on it. So I wanted to be an orthodontist. So they said, Mullen, <laughs> why don't you and these guys do some research with the Combeam machine? So I did. When I was applying to ortho residencies, UCLA had a new Combeam machine. And they're like, hey, we could use somebody who knows how this works. How about you work on this? Okay, so I did. And then in uh, you know 2007, I still remember the Angle Orthodontist meeting uh, in Southern California was uh, putting a call out for, for speakers. And I was a resident. 
And so I responded and said, well, I'll, I'll speak on comb beam. And they said, no, no, this is for, this is for graduates. This is for doctors. <laughs> I was like, okay, I understand. And then a couple weeks later, they called me back and they're like, well, actually, we still need somebody to speak. How about you come do that? <laughs> sure. And that's just as it goes. There's people in the audience that heard it and said, oh, we'd like you to come speak at this. We'd like you to speak at this. And comb beam, you know, at this point isn't cutting edge like it used to be. And so I don't speak on comb beam as much as I used to. But that's right. kind of what started it all for me. Right. Would you would you say that you're, you consider your practice today to be uh, a high tech practice or a cutting edge practice? You know, where... Where do you fall or, or how do you think about implementing perhaps some of these more expensive technologies? You know, it sounds like you've got a lot of experience in comb beam, but, you know, there certainly are a lot of places for orthodontists to spend their money on some of these technologies. Where does your practice fall on that spectrum? Are you trying everything out or, or how do you make these decisions? I think there's the cutting edge and then there's the bleeding edge where you're so far out there that your skin's peeling off and, you know, you're, you're just right on the edge and, and to some degree, putting yourself at risk. I'm not bleeding edge because I, I believe in a pragmatic approach to, orth- to orthodontic technology and technologies in general, just in your house. You know, something new comes out. I don't go out and buy it immediately, implement it and figure out I could have bought the same thing with new updates that works better two years later at half the price. So I prefer a pragmatic approach. We, we have comb beam in our offices, which is you know, a, a huge help for us, but we also want to respect the Alara principle. And so we work around with that. You know, we, take uh, 3D scans, but I don't print 3D models. There's some reasons behind that, that I think pragmatically for the workflow and cost within my office overhead, it doesn't make pragmatic sense to be doing 3D models when I have an in-house lab and uh, Alginet and Plaster is still a great option that works well and I can turn things around in an hour. So I, I think that it's easy to, uh, you know, kind of gloss over and get starry-eyed and, and want to have all these cool things. We like technology, therefore I, I need this. But really being able to differentiate between a need and a want, I think is key in our profession because uh, when you're new and you buy an expensive product and it doesn't work out or it doesn't pay for itself, just like the rep said it would in five cases, uh, you really put yourself at risk because you don't have a lot of margin to work with. You got bills to pay, loans to repay, and so knowing when to buy and what to buy and being willing to buy maybe a refurbished model. And stuff, I think as I love technology, I'm a techno geek, but I embrace a pragmatic approach to it. Yeah. And I think the point you're making about evaluating your own situation is really a key thing. Like you mentioned, if, if you're kind of starting out and, and cash flow is tight and, and maybe, you know, you need to be spending that money on marketing or on staff or, you know, on student loans, you really have to make this decision, I think, from a little bit more um, objective standpoint where you're really looking at the pros and cons of everything. Whereas perhaps you're further along in your career and your practice debt is paid and your student debt is paid and your mortgage is paid and you want a toy that's fun to come to work with and play with every day. I think Howard Ferran says, you know, you could buy a boat or you could buy a comb beam machine. That's your decision, you know, or any of these things you can do. And so I think when you get to a certain point, it's okay, even if it is just a want, but you have to make sure that you actually can afford all of those wants at that point and and not kind of confuse those two scenarios. In my opinion, if if you're looking to buy a a new technology, a new toy, uh, that's, that's a good way to put it. I think you really have to ask yourselves five questions. I mean, the number one is, can you afford it? You know, spot on. If you can't afford it, then you shouldn't be looking at it. I still drive the same car I drove in dental school. You know, the, the thing's over 10 years old. It's got a crack in the windshield. It's paid for. It runs. 
why should I buy a new car? That's just me though. So, you know, I could afford it, but I'd rather use that money somewhere else. Can you afford it? Does it make your life easier? I think that's the next question you have to ask. If it doesn't make your life easier, I'll be devil's advocate here and say sometimes 3D printing does make your life easier. Sometimes it complicates it unnecessarily. So you you have to ask, does it make my life easier? And if it does, and if 3D printing makes it easier for you, then by all means, awesome. Does it improve the delivery of care? That's the third question for me. If, if you're going to use a technology, is it actually going to improve the experience for the patient? Because experience is a big part of what we do. Yep. And if it's not really improving the experience, then you have to ask yourself if you need to do it. And the last two I'd say, does it improve the treatment results? I mean, that's where we're all driving for is quality care. So the technology that you're doing should improve treatment results. If it's not improving the results, then is it something that you really need? And, and then finally, does it have a positive impact on the bottom line? We are all running small businesses. We should not be ashamed to talk about the fact that you can't just say, well, this is a great technology. My patients need it, and I'm going to buy it regardless of my bottom line. You need to look at that and say, is this really something that my practice can afford? Yep. It may look great on the top line, but how is it going to look on the bottom line? And that's where most plane crashes happen close to the ground. The worst plane crash, there's no chance to glide. So you really shouldn't be making big mistakes when you're not that far off the ground, when you don't have a lot of cash flow in the bank. Like you were just saying, you know, you could buy that toy when you're a little further along and you can absorb that. You have a little more chance to glide if you determine that you probably shouldn't have dropped 200 grand on that, whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing I think of when I think about these technologies is that most of the time there is a lot of work on the implementation side. You know, there's very few things that you can do that are just plug and play. You, you know, you come back to the office on Monday and you say, staff, great news. I've got this wonderful thing that's going to make our life better. And then you just plug it in and it goes. I mean, it's, there's almost always a lot of work developing systems and really understanding the workflows. Is that something that you guys have, have had to kind of work on as you've evaluated or implemented things in your practice? You know, workflow, I mean, that is when it comes to making something work in your office and, and to be profitable and to improve the delivery of care and make it a better experience. It's all workflow. Yeah. Because if the workflow is is not where it's supposed to be, then it's not a good experience. It's not effective. It's for the patient, for cash flow, for anything. And we often buy these big toys without any thought to workflow. How is this going to impact my workflow? So getting systems in place before you install or even before you consider purchasing, if you're to be uh, that proactive, is a very prudent thing to do. Yeah. Because if the workflow is not there, if you're not, if you don't have enough team members to do this properly, then you need to wait till you have enough team members. If you don't have the talent where it needs to be so that you can hand off the, otherwise you're going to be the one doing everything, building the workflow, following through quality control, all that kind of stuff. And so I really think that workflow when it comes to combing, 3D printing, all that kind of stuff is critical to have sorted out before you put the machine in your office. Otherwise you're going to have a period of time where you're trying to learn on the fly, get the workflow and systems done. You want to be finessing workflows, not building workflows once you install some. Otherwise, you've, you've really done something very cost ineffective. Yeah. And I mean, and then sometimes, you know, the worst case scenario is that the workflows 
actually almost make the product unusable. In other words, you know, I, I, I'm familiar with dentists who have purchased what are these Serac units, you know, $160,000 oh, yeah. and never really get enough confidence. And then they're literally sitting in the corner of the office and I come by and it's still sitting there from the last time I visited. And I think you guys got to sell this thing because it's just dropping in value. You never use it. You know, one example I think of is like an intraoral scanner. You know, people, they want to get an intraoral scanner. You know, that's something that really in our office has turned into a wonderful thing, but took a lot of effort to to develop those workflows and practices around. So, you know, my advice to someone who's considering that for their practice is to go visit someone else to see how they do it, to kind of get a little bit of sense of what are the pros and cons, to see it in action. You know, you mentioned as well, I mean, that's another great example where you can buy a used scanner or, or something just to get your feet wet, spend the several thousand dollars, $5,000 or $8,000 to experiment, to get whatever else. And then as you get those systems, then you can go spend $35,000 or, or whatever. You know, I think the, the workflows around these can make or break the whole experience. You get 100 orthodontists in a room and you ask them to raise their hands if they bought something that cost over $20,000 that they didn't use. And there will be people in there raising their hands. Oh, yeah. I mean, you do it all the time. The, the reps are reps because they're good at selling us things. <laughs> and then you go to a meeting and if you don't buy it right now, then you'll lose the 20%. You know, if you buy right now, 20% off and we'll, we'll throw in this as well. Yep. And all of this is going to pay for itself in... You know, it's $20,000, Doc. And so this will pay for itself in, in four cases. How much do you charge for your braces? Oh, 5000 Okay. So this will pay for itself in four braces. Yeah. And it, it's and we're sitting there and we're like, yeah, okay, okay. Well, I guess those cases have no overhead. There's no overhead in those. <laughs> all, that $5,000 goes straight into my, into my pocket. I don't pay Uncle Sam. I don't have overhead. My staff works for free. I mean, it's such a, a silly argument that something will pay for itself in cases. And yet the reps make that claim all the time. And we fall for that claim all the time. Yeah. And then you get this thing in your office that you bought because it was 20% off. You didn't want to lose that, but you haven't thought about how you're going to integrate it. Yep. And it, it could be the coolest machine in the world, but it's now a $20,000 paperweight. You know, I think I was thinking about our conversation that we were going to have discussion tonight. I was thinking, you know, what are some great technologies and I think a lot of them are things that we don't even really think about as technology, like digital radiography, even 2D. That's great technology, largely because we've figured out all the implementation and because it, it does solve so many problems. Another great technology is auto debit of your credit card or bank statements for orthodontic practice. Like that technology is like a killer technology that we're all making use of. So I think there are some of these more practical things. And I know that you, I've seen you lecture on some of these topics. There can be things that maybe aren't as flashy, aren't as expensive, but that can help us in our practices. You know, are there a few of those things that, that you've seen or that you're using currently that you think orthodontists could benefit from taking a look at? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting you bring up debit credit card process and all that kind of stuff. You'll go out and buy a machine because you think it's, it's going to help your bottom line by selling cases, which, you know, people buy you. They don't buy your machines. They don't buy the fancy stuff. They buy you. So if, if you want to be more profitable, then maybe spend a little time finessing your presentation. I, I mean, there's so many little things we can do that you don't have to invest in. Yep. And one of the main thing is work on you. You do you and, and kind of dial that in. That's, that's a big thing. But but credit and debit cards, you can negotiate your rates and people don't think of that or they, 
a year goes by and you haven't called your credit card processor and tried to renegotiate your rate, you're losing an opportunity. You could make or save as much money simply by renegotiating your percent on your credit card processing than you could on some of these, these cool technologies, which I love and I use. I'm just saying the stuff you're talking about, that little stuff that you walk right over, you forget it's there. Yeah. As for technologies, and I like your definition of them, a couple big ones that jump out to me, it's like Google Voice. I, I love Google Voice. Uh, we have emergency phone, but we no longer have to get, we don't have a physical phone that has to be traded or dropped or replaced or, you know, meet at the office at, at midnight to hand off any of that stuff. It's just, we use Google voice. That's our emergency number. And you just go on the app and you say, okay, Jennifer's, you know, on call. So I'm going to uncheck Melissa here and I'm going to check Jennifer instead. And now all the emergency calls go to her phone. Simple. Now, you know, Google transcribes those emergency calls or at least attempts to, but doesn't really have the whole orthodontic verbiage down yet. So <laughs> you might get an occasional text message on that phone saying, you know, Johnny has a beaver in his mouth or something like that. You just don't know. So it's just, it's a beautiful thing though, because I'll set it. The call goes to voicemail. My phone gets a text message. Why is that important? Because the clinician answering the calls and triaging the calls is always supposed to answer. So if it goes to voicemail, I know that something's up. The clinician didn't answer the phone. So I don't get a text every time somebody calls it. I only get a text when somebody leaves a message and then I can listen to the message, call them back right away. Right away. And maybe my clinician, there was a, an emergency or something sure. at home and she couldn't answer the phone. So it allows me to let my clinicians do their part in triaging, but then step in as needed and we don't have a physical phone. So, and it's free. That's a great one. I think that's a huge one that gets overlooked. Custom Channels is a uh, is a company that allows you to create custom playlists, kind of like you know Spotify or or Pandora. But you're also able, as part of their package, to record commercials. So they get professional voice talent. You give them the script, and they'll record five commercials. They'll refresh them. Oh, I think it's every year they'll refresh three commercials. And then you set it, you know, every five songs, a commercial plays. So instead of having people listen to commercials for other products in your office, they're listening to commercials for Invisalign or other clear aligner products you may be offering. Uh, listening to your upcoming event for Halloween candy buyback. Did you know we should see kids at seven? Hey, mom. Yeah, I'm talking to you, mom. What about you? It's time for your smile. I mean, you can have these fun commercials that are driving patients to, to look at your own services because they're captive. Why should you be marketing for somebody else? Shouldn't market for yourself. So I think that makes it easy. Custom channels. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, slide aisle. Yeah. I, th- I think a lot of people are familiar with slide aisle, but it uh, basically allows you to go straight to voicemail if you call somebody. So if you're doing care calls and you know, you've, you've got a bunch of care calls to do, but you also have very little time to do it. You can use slide aisle, call the number and it, you're going to go straight to their voicemail. Hey, it's Dr. Aaron. Just wanted to you know, check on Jody. How's she doing? You know, if there's any trouble, give me a call back. This is my cell phone. And the very rarely are they going to call you back. And then if they do, it's, it's probably an emergency or something you want to manage from a patient care standpoint anyhow. But then you're doing that, that nice touch base with them. And you know, again, very inexpensive. Uh, depends on the number of calls you make. But great product, big result. Definitely, definitely. I've used those. Slide dial. I think that's, I think that's a great one. When, 
you know, I I always love these things because they're, they're always exciting to think about and, and everyone kind of tries them. Some of them work really well for you and some of them don't. But when you find that one that works, it's so exciting and really like you jump on board and you're like, I can't believe it. How did I do this? It always feels like it's like this little secret that you found. I think that's part of the excitement of, of learning about technology and trying some of those things out. You know, as a quick aside here, I'm, I'm curious, maybe you can just give us the quick thumbs up or thumbs down on your not so professional opinion on consumer products. So what, what would you say about Alexa listening to everything going on in your home? Thumbs up or thumbs down for you? Thumbs up. Thumbs up. You're a fan. Pick your battles. Okay. I mean, good privacy to some degree <laughs> is, it needs redefined. So, okay. Okay. How about, how about this one? Driverless cars, thumbs up or thumbs down for you? Back to the future, baby. I mean, it's coming. Yeah. Thumbs up. It, it's, okay. it has to go that direction. It will go that direction. And what do you, what do you think about uh, drone delivery of stuff from Amazon? Is that, is that headed our way? Yes or no? I'd like to believe it is. I think they're going to have a really hard time making that practical uh, just from an air airspace point of view. Uh, yeah. Cool idea. Yeah, exactly. So I'm thumbs up on driverless cars. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit freaked out by Alexa. We don't have any Alexas going uh, in, in our house, but I've got, I've got a six year old son in my house who listens to everything <laughs> we say. And there's just as much chance that he's going to blurt out something to somebody that he overheard. Uh, then Alexa is going to send my information somewhere else. So I, I think I'm more at risk of my six year old overhearing something my wife and I say, that's true. That's true. Well, let's switch gears here a little bit. Actually, before we do this, I want to hit up one more thing. I think the other interesting area for technology that people can use is in their personal or practice finances in terms of there's all different ways. I don't know if that's an area you've explored, either tracking your spending or you know investment advice even certainly running practice statistics. Oh, you know, are there other things in terms of your personal or practice finances where you've kind of used technology to help you? Oh man, that, that, oh, that's a loaded question. That's a good question. I, I think the number, the number one thing is, is just to be tracking it. I mean, if, if you get on a scale every day, the research shows that you're going to lose weight. If you measure yourself every day, you're going to lose weight. Yeah. If you're not tracking your finances, which that's been me before, not tracking my finances. If, if you don't have a budget and you're not tracking, if you're in that budget, then you will overspend. You will, I, I don't know if the right words, lose money, but you certainly won't be using your money in the way you could have been. So I, there's so many different programs out there that give you that ability. I mean, even stuff like QuickBooks, which is kind of old school, but man, they've got some good tools in QuickBooks that you can track personal finances. Uh, Mint is, is another one. I, I mean, there, there's so many cool little apps that you can use. Uh, the, the app verse has just blown up. So it's hard to just say one, but anything that allows you to track your finances and then allows you to set a budget. If you're not doing that, if you start doing it, you will save yourself money. I agree. Uh, that, that right there, just weigh yourself financially. I agree. I think you have to have a system and if you can use technology like an app like Mint or something else that will will make the process less painful, that maybe helps you with the auto categorization and loads in the transactions mm-hmm. and kind of reduces that annoyance of having to type everything into a spreadsheet and does it for you, then I think that gets you closer to to the tracking. I think that's really where technology can can help you. But yeah, I think anything you can pick that that'll work, you know, has has a potential to help there. So 
Good. We're going to talk a little bit here uh, in the second part of this interview. I actually saw you speak at the NISO meeting in uh, Connecticut, which was a great meeting. And you talked a little bit about, you know, the culture that we have in our office, kind of some of the, the ways to think about success, the ways to think about failure. But let's start by talking a little bit about this word that, that we love and we love to hate, which is culture. And I actually have my notes in front of me from the NISO meeting. You said that with culture, we first have to define it and then we have to reinforce and repeat it. That's what I wrote down. I'd love for you to maybe tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that and how culture can actually develop as a real thing instead of just kind of a, a meaningless buzzword. Well, I, I think, yeah, I mean, culture as a buzzword is spot on. It's so easy to throw around. But the, the reality is the biggest mistake people make with culture is the belief that the culture that they want to have or the culture that they think they have is actually the culture they have because those don't match. Uh, if they do, that's great. But in reality, the, the culture is really going to be how the team sees the culture, how your patients see the culture, how you're referring doctors, how the community at large sees your office. Those are really what defines your culture. We all think that we can internally define it as the doctor, but in reality, the external forces really are defining if we're, you know, what our culture is. So I think that's why it, it's important first to actually define what it is. And the way you define it is to do surveys, talk to patients, talk to parents, talk to dentists, talk to your team, do confidential uh, survey monkeys, do a 360 tour where you get a bunch of people that know you from work, church, friends, family members, and they all do anonymous surveys that describe you as a person. Well, you know, he's a really nice guy, but he has a short temper or all that kind of stuff. And then somebody compiles it and gives it to you and you see yourself kind of in front of a mirror, all the warts included. Uh, those are things that I think can help you see clearly what your culture actually is at the moment. And once you've defined what it is, then you need to define what you want it to be. Now, if they match, great. That's a miracle. It's unlikely. Uh, there's usually going to be a discrepancy and sometimes a big discrepancy between what it is and what you want it to be. So then you got to sit down with the team, sit down with yourself, figure out what you actually want it to be, define mission, which should be short. Your, your mission should not be like two paragraphs, just you know, a nice short uh, one sentence, two sentence max mission, and then a vision of where you want to go. And then the values, the compass that you're going to use to make sure you're heading the right direction, the, the compass you'll use when you're trying to make decisions. And then once you have that, then you need to disseminate it to the team. You need to live it to the team. And then you need to repeat it. Every yearly, we do a state of the practice meeting where we review where the practice has been and where it's going to go and what our goals are how we did, and we're going to always review our mission, vision, and values. Who's new? Who hasn't seen it? It's on the wall in our office. Our, our values are plastered on the wall. Our mission is bigger than life in the clinic, so you can't miss it, but it's easy to put on your wall. You know, to talk about it, discuss what it means, you have to continue to repeat, rinse, wash, repeat, rinse. You have to do that in order to really make sure that it's being disseminated so that when that clinician is talking to the mom and you're nowhere nearby and the mom asks the questions that she has a need, you can know that that clinician is aligned with the culture and the vision that you have. And she's going to say the right thing. She's going to do the right thing because she can't help but do the right thing because she's aligned with your culture. But that's not something that happens overnight. That takes a while. And then it's dynamic. Your culture is always changing. It always needs maintained. It's like changing the oil on your car. You can't just get it and then think it's going to run forever. As orthodontists, it's so tied into what we do for a number of kind of interesting reasons. 
You know, the first obviously is that, you know, we're always looking for new patients and this vibe or the, you know, the reputation of our office plays such a huge role in people referring their friends and family to see us. So from that standpoint, I think having a culture that's fun and that works and that's authentic, you know, I think makes a big difference in practice success. And the other thing I was talking with one of my assistants about this today, actually, is I think in our treatment, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about mechanics and systems. And we've even talked here a little bit about workflows and all of those things in orthodontics, I think, take you to a certain point with your clinical results. But it gets to a point where you can have all of the greatest systems, but if you don't have patient engagement, patient cooperation, you're not going to be successful. That's, I think, the other part where, you know, having culture that prides itself on good communication, patient engagement, all of these things, it also really drives our clinical success. And I think that's kind of unique, perhaps in orthodox compared to maybe abdominal surgery or something like this. Yeah, I mean, we're in constant contact with these patients from a young age all the way through, you know, uh, young adulthood. And that experience and how they see you and then how you see them, which you cannot help but have that come across in how you talk to somebody. If you, if you are judging somebody, if you're putting somebody in a box, if you're succumbing to confirmation bias in how you see somebody, it will come across in your voice. It'll come across in how you treat them. Uh, if you've got stuff going on at home and that's stressing you out, that comes across. So it's, it's really tricky because it's so easy to have those kind of things bleed into how you interact with patients. And it can either have a, a very positive effect or it can have a negative effect. And some doctors really struggle with that. I'm a great doctor. I know all the research. I'm good with my hands. I get good results. Why can't I grow my practice? Well, it's, it's not that simple. I mean, you can't just be good, but there's something within that, that really people connect with. And if it's there, it's there. And if it's not, it's not. And daily, you've got to maintain that. Have good emotional hygiene. You mentioned this briefly, but you know, how do you once you've got a mission and vision statement, you mentioned kind of doing an annual retreat, but are there things that you do with your team to really point these things out and to continually drive home these core values? Yeah, I, I think the, the main one, the, the number one is that you have to exhibit all those core values yourself. You, you can't preach integrity and, and then not show integrity. You can't say don't gossip and then gossip. So that, that starts at the top. That's the absolute 100% number one. And then number two, you have to hold people accountable. If you have team members who aren't living the culture or aren't showing the values that you have embraced, then you need to pull them aside. You need to hold them accountable. You need to write it down. And as scary as that, is, they're a great clinician. I don't want to lose them. You know, that kind of stuff will inhibit the growth of your practice and your vision. So I think that's one of the main things. And as scary as it is, people appreciate it. Good team members respond well to it. And you're not going to lose any good team members by holding them accountable to align with your vision, vision, and values. So, and that's a daily thing. Yeah. So I think accountability is a huge part of it and living it yourself. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit, Aaron, about the way in which we think about, you know, our practice success or, you know, how to kind of chart a course through maybe difficult challenges or changing times in orthodontics. You know, I think orthodontists for the most part are very driven. Uh, they've certainly had a lot of positive reinforcement over the years as to their wonderful attributes and uh, ability to be successful. And I think sometimes when we get into practice, 
we have this thought that, you know, everything we do should just, we we should touch it and it should turn to gold. Maybe not that we are owed anything, although maybe there's some people that think that, but more just the fact that everything has has kind of worked out in the past. And and now we're in this kind of dynamic landscape uh, in our practices and in our profession where it's maybe not, you know, a home run every time. Uh, This is something that I think you touched on a little bit as well. and, And I'd love to hear your thoughts a little bit, advice for people on how they should think about failure and how they should think about success. Well, I mean, that, it's, it's a big question, right? I mean, that, this applies not just to our office, but this applies to home life. This, this applies to raising kids. This applies to everything. So, I mean, we, we have a tendency as humans to, to be very embarrassed and averse to any sort of, of mistakes. You make a mistake, you want to get away from it. You don't want to admit it. You don't want to talk about it. You're going to move on. You just need to move on. And that's such a negative mindset. Catherine Schultz does it in some great TED Talks where she talks at length about the power of embracing wrongness, the people that have really transcended, that can have multiple opinions and believe many things are right all at the same time, that they're, they're at peace with having made mistakes and learning from them. It's part of progression. We, in my opinion, as humans, are in a constant state of progression. And if we resist that, then we start to regress or stagnate. And that's not the way we should be. You know, it's not emotionally healthy. So we, we need to constantly embrace progression. And to do that, we have to embrace our mistakes. We need to have a growth mindset, an abundance mindset. It's like uh, Ryan Holiday's book, The Obstacle is the Way. You have to embrace these mistakes, problems, obstacles as the means to actually grow. Don't go around them. Don't avoid them. Don't hide them. Embrace them. Failure is the greatest teacher. I'm sure somebody said that, not me. But (laughs) personally, I, I think that mistakes are, are are really the currency of progress and growth. Yeah. And too often we, we fall into this trap of, of toxic perfectionism because perfectionism, which people like to sit around and brag, oh, I'm a perfectionist. Well, so that basically means you obsess over mistakes. Awesome. Being a perfectionist is not a good thing. If you're a perfectionist, you, you should get help. You, there's great <laughs> books out there to read uh, because Perfectionism, like it's the obsession on mistakes. I want to obsess. I want to obsess on growth, and that's not what a perfectionist does. That's perfection. It's just such a toxic thing. No, I'm right there with you, and I think that it's interesting when we make a mistake. You know, I've definitely had this experience where sometimes I like to look back and I say, like, "Oh, this happened, but actually, it all worked out, and this was kind of the purpose of this in my life." And then I, sometimes I just think like, no, I really screwed that up. In other words, try not to find a silver lining. Sometimes I find to be very cathartic just to be like, no, this was just a disaster. And like, it wasn't for the best, but whatever, I learned a lot from it. I'm moving forward and I'm I'm going forward, allowing yourself to have that also then as you look towards the future then frees you up because you've, you've kind of accepted the fact that you can make a mistake, recognize it as a mistake and move forward. That way, when you're evaluating all these options, you're not paralyzed. You're not in this perfectionist mindset where you can't take the next step forward because you're afraid of making a mistake. And therefore you're kind of not, you know, we talked a little bit about before the interview started. I'm a big believer in having, you know, this bias to action where making some decision, making some step and then reevaluating or, or adjusting course is important versus kind of being stagnant and, you know, not being willing to try. 
I mean, there's a, there's a thin line between analysis and analysis paralysis. Uh, and I loved your blog on bias to action because that is that's spot on. And sometimes the silver lining is, well, I won't do that again. But we're being taught right now as a society, and, and I, I disagree with this approach, that we should avoid stress. That stress is a negative. And I, I just disagree with that. I, I think there's toxic stress uh, where we're carrying stress unnecessarily. But if you put coal under stress, it becomes a diamond. If we don't allow ourselves to be pressured with stress, when, when I'm at, at the office and, you know, we got a tight schedule and somebody wants to get started, stress can ratchet up. Do I avoid that? Should I be stress averse? If we can recognize that stress is not a negative, that used properly, it can mold you into something better, that you can be better tomorrow than you were today, then stress can become your friend. And we talk with our team about that and try to, you know, today was stressful. Awesome. We learned something. We grew from it. It's not, it's not this toxic thing. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do yoga and meditate and all that kind of stuff to decrease the stress you carry throughout your life. So we don't want to carry it like a bag of rocks. But when we're under stress, we should absorb it and welcome it and see, okay, how can I respond and grow in this moment instead of trying to get out of the moment as quickly as possible? Growth doesn't occur if you're trying to constantly avoid stress because you're avoiding learning. I love that. This has been a great conversation. I've uh, had a great time uh, bouncing these ideas around. Uh, we're going to jump, Aaron, into this Express 8. We're going to finish with eight quick questions and get some uh, rapid-fire answers from you. How's that sound? All right, let's do it. What is your go-to treatment for full-step class twos? That would be a Herbst appliance with uh, upper braces. What is your standard retention protocol? Uh, lower three to three, only bonded to the lower threes. Uh, round wire, nothing braided down there with upper and lower overlay clears. Aaron, who are your role models or mentors? Oh, wow. Got to say right off the bat, my dad, Dr. Bruce Mullen, uh, is my number one. And my brother, Rick, uh, Rick Mullen. But I would also say, uh, you know, Dr. Uh, Juan Moon and Eric Ting, uh, who mentored me at UCLA, were fantastic. I learned a, a ton from them. Uh, and then my, my interaction with uh, you know, Dr. Prophet, uh, rest his soul. And there's just so many great leaders. It's, it's hard to name them all. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, those, those would be the guys I'd name right off the bat. That's, that's a pretty great list. What's your favorite orthodontic product or instrument? Something you wouldn't want to practice without? I would not want to practice without my, my iCap Flex. Okay. I love being able to capture 3Ds at a very low radiation dose. What's the best vacation you've ever taken, Aaron? My family and I just did a, a three-week trip around the Middle East, stopped uh, well, in other countries. We did England and Italy and uh, Istanbul, Turkey. Love Istanbul. We did Pompeii. We spent 10 days in Israel and Palestine. Uh, and then we went to Jordan and saw Petra. And then we spent several days in Cairo, several days in Luxor. That was without question the most amazing trip I've ever done with my family. That's pretty spectacular. It almost makes me want to get a, a partner here in the practice. <laughs> that sounds pretty great. <laughs> it's very helpful. What's one great book you've read recently? I'm going to break protocol. I'm, I'm going to give you two books here. Uh, Zen Shorts uh, by John John Muth, which is actually a kid's book. Okay. But it's powerful, powerful stuff. So uh, Zen Shorts. Uh, and then I would say uh, Astoria is an incredible book ab about perseverance and the exploration of the American West and how my great state of Washington and Oregon to our south actually became U.S. territory instead of British. 
And uh, yeah, I've just been really infatuated with this, huh. with this book, Astoria. It's written by, I'm just pulling it up on Amazon right now, uh, Peter Stark. But it's, it's a great read, and I think there's things applicable. I'm reading it, and I'm thinking about, well, that applies to life. That applies to orthodox. That applies to real business. Okay. Don't make that mistake. Cool, cool. I'll have to I'll have to check that out. I, I just bought I bought Zen shorts here just while you were talking, so I'll I'll give that one a go. That's uh, Re- read it with your kids. Yeah, uh, amazing. What bracket system are you currently using, Aaron? We currently use the Damon Three MX. Okay, so we're not using the the latest and greatest or latest generation of Damon brace. We use the D Three MX, and I love it. It's got great torque, great rotation control. It is our go-to. That thing is rock solid. Perfect. And what is one area of orthodox that you would like to learn more about in 2019? Well, because I have been somewhat resistant uh, to uh, 3D printing and its application to a larger practice on a large scale, I think that I need to swallow my, my ego a bit and really dig into that and see if there's things that are applicable to my practice that I may be overlooking. I don't know. It seems like that's a rabbit hole. You can you can go pretty far down, but uh, potential for for some uh, cool things there as well. Awesome. Well, Aaron, this has been a fantastic interview. Thank you so much for spending a little bit of time uh, with us this evening. If people want to get a hold of you or have any follow up questions for you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, that would be by email, and uh, you can just reach me. It's Doctor Aaron, D R A A R O N. No, no dot in there, just Dr. Aaron at molensmiles.com. So M-O-L-E-N-S-M-I-L-E-S.com. Awesome. Well, I'm going to be out in your neck of the woods uh, in June climbing Mount Rainier. So maybe... Uh, oh, you got to come hang out with me. Maybe I'll have to come, uh, come by and say hi and, uh, and see. Our kids don't get out of school until late June up here. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be in town and I'll be in the office. So swing on in. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, Aaron, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Lance. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode. 